Amen. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for mornings like this where we get to gather together and remember the facts of the resurrection of your son, Jesus, and to remember not just that he was raised, but what it means for us personally. Um, so, Lord, doubtless uh, there we all come to this morning and to this text in different seasons of life, be it rejoicing, be it grieving, um, fearful, trusting, joyful, um, depressed. Um, Lord, we are doubtless all over the map. And so we thank you that you are a living God who's given us a living word that can build us up. And so I pray, Lord, today that you would help us Help us prepare our hearts and our minds and our bodies to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus in a few weeks' time. So would you, would you come and would you instruct us and teach us through your word? We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and let me uh, explain kind of where we're going here. You guys probably have read books before as to the um, what would be called the apologetic proof of the resurrection. Like, so let's get together and let's look at all the evidence of, of whether or not Jesus was risen from the dead. And so there's this, um, there's like the case for Christ, the case for the resurrection, the case for the empty tomb. There's all these different um, apologetic uh, sermons and books and all these things to try and convince you of the reality that... Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, I might be alone in this. I have no problem believing that Jesus was risen from the dead. I have zero problem. I believe that as factual as I believe my middle name is Moore. It just is a fact. It's a reality. I've always, I've, I've always trusted this. Now, where I really struggle is not that Jesus is who he says he is. And that he did what he said he came to do. What I struggle with is that I have an ownership in that. That what he did, which I know he did it, that it was somehow meant for me. That's where, in my dark night of the soul, I don't, I'm always like, oh man, did he include me there? So, to, to give you a, a metaphor, I believe that God has richly laid the table. The question is, do I have a name card there. Has he set aside a seat for me? Anybody else that way? That like the idea that God has the power over life and death and can raise Jesus from the dead and save anybody who he wants to save, that's no problem for me to believe. None whatsoever. But the fact that, or the, the, the question as to whether or not he intended me, goodness to me in that, that's what I have um, that's what I have a hard time believing. So what I want to do with you today is I want to, we're setting aside the book of Nehemiah for, uh, for a season. We'll come back to it probably, Lord willing. Uh, but I want, to start us, I want to start preparing our hearts for, uh, for what should be the greatest celebration yearly that we as Christians participate in. 
the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our, our salvation demonstrated in the resurrection. And so today, what I want to do is I want to look at just a few things concerning the resurrection of Jesus as it pertains to, I'm, I'm really driving at the question, how do we know that God intended that for us? How do you know that? How do you lay your head on your pillow and say, I know that he intended me. He intended my good in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're, that's what we're after. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a really brief context to the book of Romans. You are in at the end of Romans 4. So let me talk you through the uh, just the big picture movement of the argument so that we know where we are in the book of Romans. So the book of Romans begins in chapter 1 with what's called the universal condemnation of man. Starting in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We just sang a psalm. Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who can do that? Who can go up into the presence of God? And then it lists all these things that you didn't do and that I didn't either. And so all of us have that oh stink moment of like, wait a second. I want to ascend that hill. I want to be with the Lord. But you just gave a job description I can't match. That's Romans 1 through um, through the end of chapter 3. So, uh, so the universal condemnation of man. You could call it, if you're hearkening back to the garden where man sinned and realized he was naked, you can, you can call Romans 1 the universal nakedness of all people. Nobody has, nobody has righteousness before this holy God, not Gentiles and not Jews. And so Paul starts off this great news gospel with an absolute condemnation of everybody. It's awesome. Then, in uh, halfway through chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul moves from the fact of your condemnation and mine before a holy God. He answers the question, uh, or he, he describes for us what God in Christ has done to forgive you of your sin. That God has done something authoritative, sovereign, gracious, and effective to forgive you of your sin. And so if one through three halfway is the universal nakedness of man, 321 through 31 is the, the provision of covering. This is what God has done to cover your nakedness so that you don't have to be ashamed before God. Okay, so that's uh, Jesus coming, dying, and rising so that we can be redeemed from our sin. And then when we get to chapter four, which is where we're going to be uh, really sitting down in uh, today, when we get to chapter 4, the question is, so the universal nakedness or condemnation of man, what God in Christ has done to cover our sin, but now the question is, okay, so we're naked, God has provided clothing, how do we appropriate it? How do I put that on me? Because it's not enough just that he did it over there, there's got to be some sort of response where I partake of that. I've laid the table, God has laid the table, how do you come sit down and eat? How do you do this? That's the question that Romans 4 gives. And the answer is faith. Romans 3, 21 through 31 is the, is the grace of God to us, offered to us through Christ. Romans 4 is how we as sinners come to partake in and appropriate the grace of Jesus Christ. And his answer is faith. And what he, the, faith is how we appropriate that grace. We receive it as a gift. And so... 
the, um, the picture that Paul gives us is the picture of Abraham um, doing life in a covenant way with God as God promised this old and barren man who had an old and barren wife that they were going to have kids. And that's the picture that Paul raises up and he says, this is what you need to look at. If you want to know how to appropriate the grace of God by faith, look at Abraham. Okay, so what we're going to do is I'll, uh, we'll read a little bit. I'll make some observations. And then there's a couple of things that I want to point out to you about the very last verse in Romans 4. So let's, uh, let's start in verse 16 and we'll just kind of uh, Romans 4. Uh, starting in 16, and we'll run, we'll run through, and I'll make some observations, and then we'll focus in. Okay, Romans 4, 16. This is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring. Okay? The promise, you don't appropriate Christ by getting your life together. You don't appropriate Christ by making sure to obey. You don't appropriate Christ by stopping sinning. You don't appropriate Christ by taking the sacrament or being baptized, you don't appropriate Christ any other way but by faith, receiving Christ for yourself, resting on him. That's why uh, it's by faith so that it might rest on grace and be guaranteed, not just offered, but guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adhere to the law, that's the Jew, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, that's Jew and Gentile trusting like Abraham did. So, Paul introduces Abraham here, who is Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I made you, he says to Abraham, the father of many nations, in the presence of the God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Now, this is really important that God, Paul says, God is the one who calls into existence things that do not exist. Now, this is uh what that calls to mind is Genesis 1 where God said, Hey, light, I want you to be. And there was no such thing as light until he said it. And now all of a sudden, there's light. Hey, land, I want you to be. And now all of a sudden, where there was no land, there is land. Everything that God says, he calls it into being. And listen, he's going to do the same thing with faith. He's going to do the same thing with grace. Salvation that does not exist for you. Right standing with God that does not exist for you as a sinner God is going to call it into being by his word, Jesus Christ. He is the one who calls into existence things that do not exist. In 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As, has been, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now listen to verse 19. He's going to repeat this a couple of times. Abraham did not weaken in faith. When he considered his own body. I want you to think on that in a moment. Abraham did not weaken in faith. Parentheses in the sermon. Oh yes he did. He totally did. He totally did. But I'm going to explain. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Which was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. God we've been doing birds and the bees stuff for a long time now. And we have had no children. And you're telling me we're going to have children? Look in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 23. But the words... 
it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So not just for his sake alone, but for our sake also. So the, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the imperfection of Abraham's faith in 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Here's the problem that I have with that verse. And it's a great problem to have because there's something glorious here. Paul says twice, no unbelief made him waver. Well, when you read the book of Genesis, you read that God calls him in Genesis 12, calls Abraham in Genesis 12 to go to a nation, to a land that I'll show you. And God promises, I'll give you land and I'll give you seed and I'll give you blessing. And he was there for 10 years without a single attempt at, at offspring. Like no, no babies came his way. In Genesis 15, God promises to Abraham, I'm going to give you uh, children from your loins. In Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, uh, this is the quote in verse 22, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But Abraham receives a promise that he, his body, from his loins, he's going to have children. Do you know what happens in Genesis 16? So in 15, he gets a promise, believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Do you know what he does in 16? He says, can't happen by Sarah. She's too old. Give me Hagar. And he takes his surrogate wife. And they're going, to, they're going to bring about the promises of God by grace that are supposed to come through faith. They're going to try and bring it about by, by flesh. They try and accomplish this on their own steam. That's what happens in Genesis 16 is Hagar and Ishmael. After, listen to me, this is what's so important. After 10 years of not trying, he gets a promise that he's going to have a son. And so he tries by the flesh to accomplish it. The idea is his action was imperfect, but his faith was where it was supposed to be. He was trusting. Why did why did Abraham, after 10 years of not trying with Agar, why did he all of a sudden try? The answer is because he believed God. So it's an amazing thing that you can look at that, that Paul can look at and say, when he considered his own body in the deadness of Sarah's womb, that he did, that no unbelief made him waver. But uh, it's because he believed God and he was trying to bring about what God had promised. Well, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 17, it's a very interesting text. God comes to him and he says, no, you screwed it up with Hagar and with Ishmael. When I said I was going to give you a son, I meant from your body and from Sarah's body. And do you know what Abraham did when he heard that in Genesis 17? Abraham said, oh, wow, thanks, God. Not wavering in unbelief. I know that you are going to do. Do you know what Abraham did? He laughed at God's face. <laughs> no way. No way. And he laughed. By the way, Isaac means laughter. Sarah did the same thing later on when she was eavesdropping through the tent. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to come back next year. And Sarah is going to be nursing a baby. And she laughed at God twice. Both of them laughed. So how can, when people hear the promises of God and laugh, try and accomplish them by, the, by their own flesh, how can Paul then talk about uh, Abraham having no unbelief making him waver concerning the promises of God? Well, I think if we were to ask Jesus, he would take us back to the parable of the mustard seed. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be gone, and it'll be cast into the sea. What is Jesus talking about there? What is he talking about there? He's talking about the, the fact that it's not the quality of your faith that matters at all. 
It's not the, it's not the quality or the quantity of your faith. Like how much faith do you have? And how good is your faith? And how free of doubt is your faith? None of that matters. You know what matters? It's the content of your faith. Who are you trusting? Are you trusting this God who calls into existence the things that do not exist, including your faith? Are you trusting him? Yes, you're going to trust him perfectly. Yes, you're going to be full of doubt. But it is the content and not the quality of your faith that matters most. So when you look at whether or not you have a share in Jesus, you're looking at the objective realities of what, what God in Christ has done for you. Those don't change. So the only if and the only question mark is, have I believed enough? Have I believed well enough? And you should just put all of those rests to bed and, have, and enjoy the faith of Abraham, who believed God imperfectly, but it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, I want to think with you on the reckoning of faith. Look in verse 22. That is why. So 21, Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Let me ask you, Christian. Are you fully convinced that God is able? Right? Notice. Able, like, is God able? Does he have the power to make good on his promise to make you like Jesus? To completely purge your body, your soul of every taint of original sin and to make you, to conform you into the image of his son. That's the promise of the gospel. Is God able to do that? I think we would all say, of course he is. The question is, is he willing to do it? That's where, that's where I struggle. Is he, willing to, is he willing to do that for me? He is. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why he's convinced that God is able. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is what's, what's bizarre, is we would expect Paul to say Abraham's righteousness was credited as righteousness. Like, his goodness was credited as goodness. But that's not what he says. He says it was Abraham's faith that was credited as righteousness. So Abraham struggled mightily to figure out what faith in God's promises required of him. But every failure of his was a failure based upon faith. And the scripture says that this type of faith is credited, is counted, is reckoned to him as righteousness. It was credited, reckoned, counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so uh, let, me, let me talk to you about a couple of terms here. Righteousness. What is, what, when, when Paul uses the word righteousness, what is he talking about? To be righteous is to be considered by God as having perfectly fulfilled Everything that he has ever required of anybody. That's what it means to be righteous. If, if, you were to, if, you, if you need a picture of this, think in your mind, go back to the garden. Adam and Eve are naked and they're unashamed. And before the fall, what do you think they did when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden? What do you think they did? They have nothing to hide. What do you think they did when joy himself comes strolling in? To meet with him. What do you think they did? They ran to him. There's nothing to hide. They are in a state of righteousness. I don't have any shame. I don't have any guilt. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I am a-okay, all aces with my Father God. And so when I hear him, I run to him. 
What's the opposite of righteousness? I hear God coming to talk with me. And I have to go hide myself in his blessings among the trees because I'm naked. Okay? Uh, Brandon Manning said, uh, said it this way. He said, if Jesus, the door swung open at the back and he were to walk in and he were to look at you. He's not looking at anybody else. He's just looking at and considering you. What is the countenance of his face? What is the expression on his face? Is it disappointment? Is it tolerance? What is it? Is it joy? What is it? What do you think? What, the way that you answer that question. Of course, you could give me a Sunday school answer, but I'm asking about your soul. How does your soul feel about that question? A righteous person is the only type of person who need not hide when they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Abraham's faith was counted to him as right standing with God. So, because Abraham believed God when he heard the sound of the Lord, he could have run straight to the Lord, which he did, and he survived. That's what righteousness is. Now, what does it mean to reckon? To reckon or to count. Uh, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, as right standing with God. What does it mean to count or to reckon something? It means the opposite of producing it yourself. It's the opposite of producing it yourself. It is having something bestowed upon you, okay? So I got to play golf with a brother in the Lord this week, and it was really funny because I stink at golf really bad. And so I was like, you know, off the tee box, I have my first one over into like some other property, ball is gone. And so if we're counting, that's one stroke, there's a penalty coming out, so we're at two, right? Do I have to tee off again? I'm at three, so I'm hitting three. I would be hitting three, off the tee box or off of wherever it went. So, so back off the tee box, okay? So then I shank one again into the woods. So, so now I'm back on the tee box hitting what? I don't do the math. I'm hitting a bunch, right? Then I, you know, uh, I never made the fairway. So I just went down to where he hit a shot that was, you know, good. And I dropped next to him. And then I, I hit a, an actually, uh, I think it was like my third shot from there. I hit a decent shot, like I got close to the green. So then we go up there and there's a couple, you know, and he's like, no, just take a mulligan, take a mulligan. I'm hitting and hitting and hitting. And finally I put one like sort of kind of close and then three putt in. And he's like, double bogey, man, great job. What do you mean double bogey? Like I had like a, I shot a 30 on that one hole. <coughs> do you know what he said? He said, I don't count mulligans. I don't count mulligans. I just don't count them. It, it's not going to hit the scorecard. That's reckoning. He's just not going to count it. It's not going to count against you. Now, <clears throat> to, to, be, to be really awesome gospel picture, it would have to be that I never hit any sort of shot good on my own, but I would just go where his ball goes and I get his score. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ reckoned to you. So how does God look at his standard of perfection and those who have not performed it? And how does he say to those who have not performed his standard, well done, good and faithful servant, when they have not been good and faithful? How does he do this? Answer, God does not count their sin against them. He does count the perfections of Christ to them. That's how. It's a reckoning of the righteousness of God, and it comes to us by faith. And so this is, the, this is the promise of faith in 23 and 24. 
But the words, it was counted to Abraham. Now, we, we all could say, oh, great, like Abraham got the greatest Christmas present ever. Do I have a present under there? I'm happy for Abraham that, it, that, that he lied and cheated and uh, was unfaithful to his wife and did all of these terrible things. And God counted his faith in the promises of God as righteousness. And so now he has right standing with a holy God. Awesome, Abraham. Really glad for you. What about me? Like, I want that too. Because if I, if, if I don't have it, it's not good news. If it's not available to me. Paul says, the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Listen to me. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And those words in Genesis 15, 6 were written for your sake and mine so that we could know that we have an ownership in the exact same grace that was offered to Abraham. It was written for our sake also. It will be counted to us. Same thing. We don't count mulligans. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin, David says. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that Jesus, that, that the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the dead? Yes or no? Yes, we believe that. It was written for our sake also who believe him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was two things that Jesus was for us. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So I want to think with you about this. Not for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. Paul is inviting us to participate in the scriptures that these things are meant for us. And so there's two parts to being made right with God. The first is your sin has to be dealt with. And the wage is death and condemnation. Okay? Death and condemnation. You sinned. We all sinned. Remember, we're all naked before a holy God. And the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. So we sinned. And the, and the punishment is death. And Jesus comes to pay our debt. And so the question we have to ask is, how is that fair? How is it fair that you sinned and Jesus died in your place? Is that fair? Is that just? Well, the answer is it is not just unless there's covenant. Listen to me. It is not a just situation unless there is a covenant between that Christ and the people for whom he died. If a single lady runs up her credit card to the max limit, several credit cards to max limit, and she's in a spot where she cannot pay even the minimum payment, how could it be possible for the credit card company to charge a different person to pay it off? The answer is it's unjust unless that man is her husband. If, if, it, if he's her husband, it's totally just. If there's a covenant there, they are one and the same person. And so he can say, that's my lady love and I'll gladly pay the bill. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. He took ownership and he took responsibility for our debts, and he paid for them in full on the cross. Debts past, debts present, debts future. He paid for them once for all. Your sin has been dealt with. 
the wage of sin is death and his condemnation and his shame. And Jesus drank all three to the dregs so that you do not have to. Secondly, so not only does your sin have to be dealt with, but your perfection had to be performed. Listen to me. It is not enough to wipe your ledger clean. <clears throat> let's, let's run this thought experiment. Let's say that, that today all of your past sins are completely forgiven. Just don't screw it up in the future. How many of us stay saved till sundown? Raise your hand. Right. We don't. We immediately accrue more debt and more spending because even as Paul said, we, we, the things that we don't want to do, we're doing the things that we want to do, we're not doing. We struggle. We still have indwelling sin that's, that's waging war in our members. So it is not enough for Jesus just to forgive our sin and do nothing else for us. You have to, not only do you have to not sin, you also have to positively hit the standard of perfection that God requires. <coughs> Jesus said it this way, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And your perfection comes through Jesus. Jesus was perfect on your behalf during his life and ministry. So, say it this way. The path to right standing with God is the narrow path that all must travel, but none can walk. Did you hear that? Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? It's narrow. It's everybody, who, everybody who's just perfect and who never tells a lie, everybody who never cheats, who never steals, everybody who loves the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of life who loves their neighbor as their self every moment without fail forever. If that's you, ascend the holy hill. You have to go that way. It's the only way in. And none of us have done it. But we have to walk that path. So how can we do it? The answer is Jesus sack of potatoes us. He throws us over his shoulder and he walks it on our behalf, bearing our load. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That's his uh, delivered up on the cross, his sacrifice for our trespasses. And listen to me, was raised, the word there is, is that, that for really should be rendered because, was raised because of our justification, meaning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that he is who he says he is, a savior for sinners, and that what he accomplished he actually accomplished the salvation of his people in actuality, not just in potentiality. So this is, Christian, what you are to believe. When we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are celebrating that he was delivered up for your trespasses and he was raised because he intended you to be justified. And by his life and by his death for your sin, you in him are justified. And he was raised up to that end. And that is glorious, glorious good news. So this table is a table that was set by the Father. And the resurrection of Jesus, Paul teaches us, is proof that the Father intends for us to benefit from it. If you're here today and you want Jesus, that's the most important question. Do you want this type of a Savior? can't want some other kind of savior. This is the one that is offered. And if everything in your heart says, yes, I love that savior and I, I want a share in him, 
you're welcome. This table is meant for you. You do not have to have perfect faith. You need to have a perfect object of your faith. It isn't how well you're trusting him that matters. It is who you're trusting that matters. So come to the table trusting in Jesus. He gave his life intentionally for you to cover your trespasses with his blood. He was raised for your justification because it pleased the Father to pardon us in Christ. He is risen and therefore you are justified. Your righteousness, which did not exist through his son, the eternal word of God, God called your righteousness into being. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing. And after we sing, I'll lay out the elements and we can celebrate. Holy Spirit, these are things that, um, that we need help to believe. We need you to give us the power to believe these promises that, we, that they were intended for us. That you intended this grace for us. So God, I pray. Uh, I pray for, uh, for anyone that is, uh, that is struggling, uh, not in a stubbornness of disbelief, but in a, it's too good to be true. Can it possibly be for me? Holy Spirit, would you come to that person? Would you convince them that the only reason they want to share in your son is because you've already called them and made them alive in Christ? And then would you give us gladness to know that Jesus has become our righteousness and our justification before you? Would you meet with us now? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.